You want to go ahead and read the thing? I do. I do. Here on Relative Disasters, we've covered quite a few financial scams as the disasters they are. For the most part, the people committing fraud get away with it for a while and then get caught and everyone involved is ruined. From Ponzi schemes to faith-based financial scams, there's no shortage of awful people taking financial advantage of other people. This is not that story. We also talk a lot about how colonialism, racism, and a lack of empathy for others leads to tragedy for all. This is also not that story. This is the story where the scammy was too smart for the scammers. A story where a person with all of the societal and legal disadvantages of being a girl of color, a legal minor, turned the tables on those who tried to take what was hers. She was a complicated person, a flawed and interesting human being who doesn't fit neatly into any of the mythologizing boxes in which we like to put our heroes. But make no mistake, this was a person who didn't just bluff with a bad hand. She bluffed with no cards at all and won, absolutely ruining the people who attempted to do the same to her. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1920 attempt to defraud Sarah Rector. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their contexts, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, oil prospecting historian for Relative Disasters Archive Services. And I'm his sister, Ella, financial advisor to Relative Disasters Investment slash hedge fund. (laughs) Shady investment advisor. Oh, the hedge is so shady. (laughs) It's lots of shade in the hedge. Mm -hmm. Okay, to start with, I'm going to be quoting from a few news articles of the day which use some very awful language concerning people of color. I'm going to be choosing to not repeat certain words that they published out of respect and empathy for those who find those terms offensive. So you'll just have to figure out the words I skip from context. All of our listeners are awesome, intelligent people with empathy, so you shouldn't have any trouble keeping on track with us. Cool. Uh, The main sources for this episode come from Dr. Lauren N. Henley's article, The Richest Black Girl in America, Sydney Trent's article from the Washington Post published in September of 2022, wherein she was able to interview some of Sarah Rector's descendants, and Tanya Boulding's 2014 book, Searching for Sarah Rector. Some of these sources are contradictory and disagree with each other, but that's the historical research of this time and subject for you. Uh, A lot of information and misinformation was made up about Sarah Rector, especially during the time period that we'll be talking about, so it's very difficult to track down trusted sources Mm. yeah it's a complicated story sounds like it's a very complicated story i'm excited to hear more sarah rector was born in 1902 to rose and joseph rector who were considered part of the creek freedmen Mm -hmm. so right off the bat we have to talk a little bit about the practice of slavery in the american south so the ownership of enslaved peoples was not limited to the landowners of the south Uh, Many of the local tribes of natives had slaves, usually as status symbols, to try to impress their Southern American neighbors. Uh, One such tribe was the Muscogee Creek. After the American Civil War, the Creek signed a separate treaty with the United States in 1866, formally emancipating their enslaved people and granting Creek tribal citizenship to them. That's really interesting. I did not know that. Yes, it was a really cool move. It was also a move that they didn't really super have a lot of say in Mm -hmm. but it was still a a neat thing for them to do Uh, so these were 
were known as the Creek Freedmen. And they were often blood-related to the Creek, Mm -hmm. as was Sarah Rector through her father's ancestry. Now, the rest of this 1866 treaty forced the Creek to cede over three and a quarter million acres of their territory to the United States to use to settle the freedmen and other native people from the Great Plains area that were being forcibly relocated at the time. The United States paid a sum of 30 cents per acre for this land. Nearly, nearly a million dollars. That sucks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... In 1893, the Dawes Commission was established by an act of Congress where, just worth pointing out, no Native people had any representation. Uh, Under the direction of one Henry L. Dawes, the job of the Dawes Commission was to further divide up the remaining land of the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Muskegee Creek into 160-acre parcels for, quote, individual households, unquote, What that did in practice was stripped away land that was held communally Mm -hmm. and granted it to individual members of those communities. Well, some of it. The rest of the remaining land, the arable fertile farmland, for instance, was set aside for purchase by settlers of mostly European descent and American citizenship. There it is. Most of the parcels that were given to the people of the tribes were rocky, unfarmable, unbuildable, arid lands bereft of any value... Except to the federal tax agencies, where an average of $30 per year taxes were levied on the properties. Mm, Yeah. That sounds expensive. It is expensive. And since the majority of the people to whom the land was granted were living in abject institutionalized poverty and getting by on, like, subsistence farming, Mm -hmm. they had no way to pay these taxes. And many immediately just tried to sell their lots. Yeah. The Rector family were cotton farmers in rural Oklahoma, deep Jim Crow law country, okay? Sarah's prospects were a life of field labor or domestic labor, just like the other children of her area and circumstances. Now, her father, Joe, tried in vain to find a buyer for his children's land allotments, asking for a mere $100. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we're talking 160 acres per kid, and he's like, please, just 100 bucks for all of them. And nobody would take it because the land was so bad. So in desperation, he turned to the Standard Oil Company. Mm -hmm. Now, the Standard Oil Company had taken up the practice of leasing these worthless patches of land from their hapless owners and looking for oil. They didn't pay much to lease the land, Mm -hmm. but it would help offset the tax burden a little. And whenever they did find, you know, a puddle of oil somewhere... Uh, a small share of it did go to the landowners. Where are we in the oil industry at this point? Are are there like giant oil fields in the area? Yes, there are. At this point, we're in 1913. Okay. And so people know about oil and oil retrieval technology, and they're building things and refining it. Yes. Okay. And it's yes, getting indeed. expensive. And, is that right? And standard, well, and Standard Oil like is the forerunner here. They're they're the people who know what they're doing they they know how to find the oil fields and how to how to get that mm-hmm. black gold out of the ground cool so anywhere from 60 to 100 miles away depending on the source again um where sarah's family actually lived they were doing their you know backbreaking manual labor of the day when the people drilling on her land struck oil Mm-hmm. Now, this was not an uncommon occurrence. A lot of these allotments had, like, you'd pull a couple hundred barrels out of one and maybe, you know, 
50 barrels out of another one. Like they had these little small deposits, right? Mm-hmm. Sarah Rector's was not that. <laughs> it was like one of those giant gushing oil fountains. It was. Cool. It was a gusher. 2,500 barrels a day. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Now, from just that one oil well, mm-hmm. Sarah's cut alone was $114,000 per year. Wow. Okay. Now, $114,000 in 1913 is a little bit in excess of $3 million today. So this little girl is like immediately one of the wealthiest people in the world. She is 11 years old. She is very likely the wealthiest woman of color in the United States. Wow. She may be one of the wealthiest people in the United States. However, this is the situation that she's in. Mm -hmm. Remember, she's only getting a cut of that, Mm -hmm. right? So Standard Oil is making a huge amount of money off this, and just her cut is the equivalent of $3 million a year. What percentage is that? Are they making like twice what they're giving her? Or is it... Oh, no. They're making many, many times what they're giving her. Okay. Like, I I saw figures anywhere from 2% to 12.5%. Okay. So this is a substantial... Operation. It's a chunk. Okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah. This is a huge operation. The oil field under her property Mm -hmm. turns out to be one of the largest in the area. Cool. Her first uh, direct payment from her royalties Mm -hmm. was a check for $5.25. That is the equivalent of $138. I have two children who have either passed through or are that age. Mm -hmm. And if you hand $140 to an 11-year-old, that is the most money that they have. This is a mind-blowing amount of cash. Oh, yeah. The amount of stuffed animals, the amount of candy. Yeah. Yeah. However, stuffed animals and candy are not what is on Sarah Rector's mind because she lives in a town called Taft. And we've got to talk a little bit about Taft. So Taft, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. uh, at the time had about a population of around 400. Okay. It had a main street. And a bunch of houses, all right? Mm -hmm. And this town of Taft, Oklahoma, was, for African Americans, a safe place. Mm -hmm. Almost all of the businesses were owned by African Americans. All of the places in town were owned and run by families of African Americans. Like, this was not a... This was not a place where she had to experience the kind of segregated racism that she had to experience literally everywhere else. Mm -hmm. So Taft was like a place worth protecting and a place that was incredibly important to her. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, we're talking, this is the Jim Crow era. Okay. This is a place where not only could anybody of color be arrested for no reason whatsoever, but if you were, accidentally beaten to death in a jail cell no one would care there would be no legal avenue to pursue uh you were not really allowed to vote you were not really allowed much of an opportunity and all of a sudden you have an 11 year old millionaire Mm -hmm. and her her friends and neighbors noticed they uh they started to upgrade their home they had some chicken houses 
mm-hmm. and a smokehouse put onto the kitchen. Nice. They even put in, and this was a real decadence here, an oil stove for cooking in the summertime. Ooh. Now that's that's a big deal. That's fancy. Also, the two luxuries in the house that were absolutely out of reach for nearly everyone else in Taft, mm-hmm. a phonograph and a piano. That does sound pretty extravagant. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. They went out and bought a horse and buggy mm-hmm. um, because uh, she had to walk two miles to get to school every day. Mm-hmm. And now she could ride to school in the horse and buggy nice. driven by her dad, which is kind of cool. The nice thing is that the oil field, as I said, turned out to be one of the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. An estimated nearly 4,000 barrels of oil were its daily output. Okay? That's wild. Okay. That is wild. And one of the newspaper articles that I sort of went over for this was somebody bemoaning the fact that she would be probably paying the single biggest tax bill in the state of Oklahoma. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Somebody also wrote a piece that said that her annual income could likely end up double that of the president of the United States. (laughs) Wild. (laughs) Wild. It also led to a lot of, as you can imagine, horrific unwanted attention. Yeah. Uh, First of all, if reporters couldn't or didn't feel like getting down to Taft, to actually talk to anybody involved, they just made stuff up. This was such uh, a good time when... for journalism. Oh, God. The yes, fact this checking. Is, this is really the high mark of journalism. <laughs> it just yeah, bleeds the into checkers. the serial fiction on the next page. I, I, I yeah. It, it was it, a lot of the stuff. So I went back and I read a lot of like era newspaper articles on this, mm-hmm. and most of them are just like just awful to read yeah. because they are unapologetically racist about everything well it's but it's the assumption that everyone has those opinions or that understanding of the world exactly that's yeah, yeah, the really yeah. depressing part of those kind yeah of, absolutely yeah absolutely and uh you know if they didn't have the facts they'd just make them up a lot of newspapers referred to her as an orphan <laughs> okay i mean that's living like with a her family big jump well no because it fits into the mythologizing right like not only is she this poor helpless little girl but she's an orphan little girl and what a good stroke of luck for her what, a, kind, what of kind of, of a story are we trying to write here is this like a there are two very conflicting narratives okay. narrative one is what an amazing thing to have happen to this poor unfortunate child sure and narrative number two is why does a girl of color deserve this when so many white folks are starving? <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. There are a lot of, I'm, it, it's a lot of editorials, oh boy. a lot of other just horrifying things about, like one of them was, was um, uh, which I'm not going to read here, but one of them uh, has the headline of white people alarmed. Um, is that the whole headline? That's the headline. <laughs> I mean, white people are perpetually alarmed. I say that as a white <laughs> there person. Is, there is We're an that. anxious, uh, anxious group of people. And and other people would like. Uh, some people tried to spread around the story that she was not an American citizen. Mm-hmm. She was a foreigner squatting in the shack. Oh boy. Um, 
it, it, just all sorts of stuff. My favorite article, though, uh, had to be, have been the one uh, in the Chicago Defender, which uh, did their share of real bad journalism on this story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> the headline is, quote, brown-skinned colored girl made white, end quote. Oh, there's a lot to unpack there, huh? There's a lot to unpack there. And the the entire point of the article is that uh, Oklahoma was about to pass a law declaring all of their native peoples of good standing mm-hmm. to be considered white for the purposes of things like where you can sit on a bus, where you can sit in a Pullman car, which restaurants are allowed to serve you. What do they that mean by good standing? Yeah, that's the part I'm not getting into. Okay. Uh, just assume every bad racism thing and, and you're probably on it. Um, but they they pe- essentially gave Sarah Rector the same declaration. Because of her wealth, she was allowed to ride um, in, in a Pullman car. Okay. Which would not be... Uh, allowed where she considered to be not white this country is just so thing. weird about race there's so many weird things in this okay uh the next weird thing that we want to talk about is of course the really gross amount of mail that she started to receive mm-hmm. a lot of them were from people uh proposing marriage to her at 11 years old <laughs> uh actually uh most of these came after she had just turned 12 oh man okay yeah that's so gross. Um, That's so gross. Okay. It was super I gross. I know people um, did that a lot. We talked about Kate Shelley. She got a ton of marriage yeah. proposals in oh, the yeah, mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's yeah. not my it's favorite. It's still weird, thing. guys. Don't do it. <laughs> don't don't propose to people who aren't adults. <clears throat> it's weird. Don't propose um, by letter to someone you haven't ever met or spoken yes. with. I think I feel like yes. that's a rule that, we can that's all also, get behind. Yeah, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good starting point right there. On your list of people not to propose to, we'll someone you've bar. never met in person. <laughs> we'll set yeah, the bar nice and set low. the bar real low. Real low. <laughs> Don't do it. Down in hell and the devil's tripping on it. So apart from the, the, the marriage proposals, mm-hmm. lots of people would write in asking for money. Uh, my favorite letter of which was this woman from New York who wrote in <laughs> uh, asking for a million dollars to, quote, improve the poorer classes, end quote. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean... That is wild. Okay. So, as a normal 12-year-old girl, Sarah had no interest in all of these people proposing to her. Uh, and she also basically didn't... Her, her policy was basically just not to respond. Yeah. Um, because why would you? So, Sarah gets away from it all next. She gets enrolled in the prestigious... Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute. All right? Okay. Now, this is the school for African-American youth. And Sarah Rector's enrollment is so cool because none other than Booker T. Washington personally arranged for her enrollment shortly before his death. And was she in the normal school? Yeah. So she was going to be a teacher? So she was going to get an education. So this is that was a the, boarding school. the big deal. This is a boarding school... And it is it is the absolute creme de la creme of the community. Cool. Margaret Murray Washington, Booker T's widow, mm-hmm. was the young women's overseeing principal. Hmm. So she basically she uh, she kept an eye on her. And Sarah wasn't the only one going. Her older sister Rebecca also went in. Nice. Tuskegee's student body was like 
Uh, I have a, a source here that puts it at five times larger than the entire population of Taft. Oh, Oklahoma. Okay. End quote. Yeah, that's a big school. It's a big school. It's more than forty buildings. It's a massive community. Lots and lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. And here is where she gets her her self appointed bodyguards, who are like some of my favorite people. Is it a bunch of other twelve year old girls? <laughs> it was a bunch of other protective other girls girl. at the school. Okay, yes. cool. So among the the rumors of you know what had happened and all the all the stuff that was swirling around her, whether she was an orphan or not, mm-hmm. whether you know she was American or not, all this other stuff, um, there were, I think in today's parlance we'd call them credible threats of people who were coming to either abduct or simply kill her. Yeah. And here we have to take a small sidebar. To talk about Stella and Herbert Sells. Okay. Stella and Herbert Sells were two other children, um, also from Taft, who had allotments in the same region as Sarah's. Mm-hmm. Their allotments also struck oil, and they became wealthy. Mm-hmm. In the spring of 1911, someone put dynamite directly under the children's bedroom. Oh, Jesus. And killed the entire family. Oh, my God. The, house was burned to the ground the children were murdered and it came out that uh it was a plot carried out by two people mm-hmm. one of whom did the dynamite and one of whom drew up the false deed to the children's land oh man signed over to himself that is incredibly horrible yeah stella was a little bit older than sarah but in a town that small the two of them had to have known each other yeah and th- this this event in a town that small really shook the whole town. Of course. So oh there my God. were actual threats. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then uh, people started to worry about people trying to abduct and or kill Sarah Rector. Mm-hmm. Everything kind of came to a head when the Chicago Defender, again, ran a headline. And this is the, the headline. Quote, Millionaire colored girl kidnapped, question mark. Richest child of the race mysteriously disappears, end quote. That is certainly a headline. And their story Mm -hmm. was that someone had come to the Tuskegee campus, used candy and pennies Mm -hmm. to essentially get her to climb into their unmarked white van of the day. Okay. And she was gone. She was no longer at the Tuskegee campus. Is this a real story? Or were they making it up? We're going to go with what actually is happening. Okay. There's no evidence that she was actually kidnapped. There's no evidence that she went missing. Okay. Any more than, like, maybe she went home for a weekend or something. And according to Dr. Lauren Henley's article, the timing of this headline from the Defender does not line up at all with the records of where Sarah was at that time. So basically, they made the whole thing up. It also doesn't really pass the smell test. Like, why would she go with somebody trying to lure her away with pennies when she's literally a millionaire? Like, I, I, that part, I get the whole, like, uh, you know, get the stereotypical poor child to follow you by, you know, throwing the pennies at him. That's like a Dickensian thing. But really? It's just such she's a not gonna weird get... story. It's a weird touch. Yeah. Hmm. I do like where Dr. Henley positions this. Uh-huh. And she states that basically, quote, The news story, in addition to selling papers, reflected the larger anxiety about where a young black millionaire girl fit into society, end quote. Sure. 
And it's true because some people are trying to hold her up as like a representative. Yeah. And some people are trying to hold her up as like curse this fortune. It should have been mine kind of thing. Uh-huh. And it just she's 12. That's a lot to put on a on a child. Yeah. You can't put that on a 12 year old. You just can't. The attention had to have been overwhelming mm-hmm. at this point yeah. in her life, especially. But also the fact that she was daily news and that people could just make up whatever they wanted about her mm-hmm. was something that no 12-year-old should ever have to deal with. Like, it's bad enough if you're a 12-year-old in school and, like, Susan says she saw you sneak a glance at the test paper or whatever these crazy kids do these days. Mm-hmm. But, like, imagine that on a national scale. Like, that level of scrutiny all the time just because you happen to be incredibly wealthy and have basically no rights with which to defend yourself against this. Yeah, that's got to be pretty horrible. People attached some pretty ugly nicknames to her. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, none of which I'm going to repeat for the reasons stated at the beginning of this uh, episode. Um, but... there's this pattern of she was unworthy, Mm -hmm. right? So she was illiterate. She was uneducated. She was one of those people. And and none of which was true. Like, she was very well educated, which is what would, you know, turn this whole story around. Mm -hmm. But you had to deal with a lot of, a lot of this, public hate of you for what they believe you represent Mm -hmm. instead of who you actually are. One newspaper, which I am going to quote, offered the following, quote, lease that land and see what's under it. Are you as good as a word I'm not going to repeat? Think it over, end quote. So here was not only does she not deserve it because of her skin tone, but the white citizens that they're marketing this to deserve it more than she does because they are inherently and intrinsically better. That's so gross. And that is just the, the ugly heart of all of this, mm-hmm. right? The problem of this is that you can't reconcile the two, right? You can't have a very young girl who has some of the wealthiest assets in the United States mm-hmm. And be a person of color. You can't possibly reconcile those two things. So that's where that whole headline about uh, legally declaring her white was. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in reality, that seems to be apocryphal. There's no there's no evidence for that other than that headline. Uh, there's certainly no legal order or anything like that. But there were legal ramifications based on her wealth and her race. Mm-hmm. As soon as money was involved, as soon as the oil started gushing out of the ground, she was appointed a financial guardian. Now that financial guardian could not be her parents because her parents were people of color. So she has that's to have a white person the law. handling this money yes. that's coming in. Yes. Okay. Again, as Dr. Henley puts it, quote, the greatest dangers to Sarah's wealth did not come from pushy correspondence or shadowy kidnappers that may have been lurking, but rather from smiling white men in suits, bankers, lawyers, bureaucrats in their 40s and 50s, shaking her family's members' hands, promising they'd take care of everything, end quote. Mm. And now we get to the scam. Okay. So the scam 
on its face is super, super simple. We have access to a ton of money that nominally belongs to a minor Mm -hmm. girl of color. Therefore, she has less legal rights and we can do with this money whatever we want, right? So what they did was they started a lending practice with her money. Um, they de- they first declared that the amount that was being paid to Sarah was in excess of her needs. So that's she... not how that works. <laughs> no, it's not how that works, is it? Not at in all. this country. No. Her her needs are whatever the hell she says they are. But they decided that what they were going to do was essentially make her money a lending organization. So they started to lend out funds from her personal account, basically, mm-hmm. to businesses, citizens. They started buying up mortgages. They started um, investing in properties. All the while, Sarah herself has no access to her own money without permission from these people. Mm-hmm. Okay? So her process is she has to request permission from her trustees for any withdrawal, And then the trustees have to bring that to a judge. And then if that passes both of them, then she can get the money out of her own bank account. So you're starting to see why this is not terrific. It also strikes me that that is extremely illegal to take your client's money and use it to set up a business. Is that, am I wrong? I've never had enough money to have a financial advisor, but... No, you're absolutely right. But the but again, she has no legal way to stop this because she is not in control of her own funds. The NAACP sent an investigator to try to figure out what was going on. Their quote is amazing. I'm going to share two quotes from from the uh, from their report. Uh-huh. The first quote is quote. This little colored girl is being neglected while white men have control of her estate and control it not in her best interests, end quote. And then in the letter to the Secretary of the Interior, stated, quote, she is being denied the treatment accorded to a good yard dog, end quote. Yikes. This is, this is a side note, but it just, it just, it, it adds a level of horrible that I feel is worth adding on here. Mm-hmm. At one point, the trustees of her funds needed some construction work done so uh they contracted her dad joe for three months of construction work for which they paid him 30 dollars out of sarah's money okay i hate that like are you kidding me like that is cartoon like 90s cartoon villain levels of awful right These guys were all twirling their mustaches oh oh it gets better the main guardian uh-huh. issued petitions to the court so that he could be compensated for travel expenses involved in filing petitions for her. See, this is... So he makes the petition, he goes to court, he gets paid for going to court with that petition, mm-hmm. and do you see how this works? It's great. There are just so many reasons why <laughs> this arrangement <laughs> should not be legal. At the very least. So while she is off now in Nashville, Tennessee, attending Fisk University. Mm -hmm. At one point, more than 40% of her available funds were used without her knowledge, obviously, to purchase investment property that she had no involvement in. 
Hmm. Yeah. Did it belong now, to her nominally? Nominally, it belonged to. Uh, see, that's where things get weird. It either belonged to her or it belonged to the trustees on behalf of her. And then the legal documents that they would later file stating that we'll get there. There's a whole thing. Okay. Sarah, however, is living the good life. All right. She is not letting this constant stream of you didn't deserve this racism set her down. She goes out. And she buys a Victrola record player. Mm -hmm. She buys a Kodak camera. Nice. And she purchases herself the Premier, which is a touring car uh, worth about $43,000 in modern money. This is exactly what I would do. (laughs) At the age of 16. She bought herself her own first car. However, the NAACP... Uh, was keeping her informed of what they were finding. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. She was really, really smart, okay? Um, She was doing really well at Fisk in mathematics and in other, like, advanced subjects. So she was able to take these legal documents that they would sort of just expect her to sign and actually read them and understand what was going on. So she's got the NAACP trying to help her, but they can't legally do much because... You know, the people in charge are the people also in charge of handling any complaints against the people in charge of managing her money are also the people in charge of any complaints against the people managing her money. Gotcha. So it's one of those fun systems. Um, So Sarah puts together a legal petition to have her father appointed one of the financial guardians, Mm -hmm. which is something that literally she shouldn't have had to do because she should never have had like her own parents not be the financial guardian. I mean, she's still a minor at this point, right? She's still 16, yeah. That blows my mind. Okay. Yeah. And the court refuses to grant her that petition. Huh. And more and more things start to come to light of these people who are managing her funds, lining their own pockets with it. All right? Now, as we get closer... To being 18. Mm -hmm. Now, at the age of 18, according to the law, she is going to take full control over all of her assets. All right? However, the people that were managing her money Mm -hmm. were doing some, I mean, not just the regular illegal stuff. They did some great, huge illegal stuff. For example, signing a contract in her name to lease some of her oil land to another oil company, Mm -hmm. uh, the terms of which would expire after she was a legal adult and was going to lose her a ton of money on this. Mm -hmm. However, the people who were going to profit were the people making the contract because they were getting the kickbacks from the oil company. In desperation, her own mother, Rose, files a petition with the court to try to get her daughter declared incompetent to manage her estate. The idea behind it, according to at least one source, was that what she was trying to do was sort of slide Sarah's uncle in as the financial manager. Mm -hmm. Under the guise that Sarah was wasting her money, they'd get an actual family member in there. Mm -hmm. However, they were not going to hand over anything to anyone involved in the family. Now, this is a trust, right? So it's not really a trust because a trust, as we think of it in modern terms, 
is like has a lot of legal protections built in this is literally the court appointed these dudes to manage this young woman's bank account just there are so many rules and instructions around yeah. illegal oh, absolutely. trust this blows my mind I, like none yeah. of this should be happening and this is the thing they are acting as trustees and i've been referring to them as trustees mm-hmm. but in reality what they are, are just people with access to her checkbook and with the legal authority to keep her from access to her own checkbook. And there's a time limit on this, right? When she becomes 18, she... When she becomes 18, she's supposed to get all the stuff. Okay. All of it. Even though they've already signed contracts that last past when she's 18, even though they've already made purchases and deals that go well beyond the purview of what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So this is where we get to it all coming to a head at the age of 18. Sarah turns 18, and literally hours after turning 18, the newspapers run with a story that Sarah filed papers to voluntarily forfeit control of all of her money to two of the trustees. What? Yeah. And this is true. Okay. She did. Why did she do that? Because this was her plan. Because Sarah, again, was smart. For years, she had been fostering this rift between her financial guardians. She had understood what had been happening. And there were a a couple of the people that were her financial guardians who actually supported her. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she had some allies on this board and the ones that were, were using their, her money for their own ends. Mm -hmm. She had carefully cultivated this image with them of being kind of a flighty kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one minute she believes in this and then one minute she believes in this. So they don't take her seriously. Okay. But her allies, she works with them very quietly to slowly build up their own stake in her assets Mm -hmm. and slowly whittle down the stakes of the other groups. And then what she did was she signs legal control of all of her assets over to those two financial managers Mm -hmm. and doing it very publicly, right? Right. We heard the newspaper headlines. Yep. And then those two financial managers Uh simply signed all of her money back to her. Because once she had forfeited it, Mm -hmm. uh, they were the only ones left as her financial managers because the other guys basically couldn't keep the scam going. The legal documents are really weird on this. so, So bear with me for a second. But basically it's this. She has, uh, legally, she has all the money. Okay. Legally, she then forfeits all the money to these two guys. So in that one stroke, she takes away all of the money of the rest of the trustees and very publicly puts it in the hands of these two trustees. Okay. And then these two trustees very quietly sign it back over to her. So she gives them the money. Why do they give it back? Why don't they just hang on to it and keep scamming her? Because they're the two that she has been working on trust with. They're the two that that don't want her to get scammed. So she hands it to her allies on the board. Yes. And they give it back. Because remember, it's not really a board, okay? And as soon as she legally has control of all the money, the other guys are about to start filing court orders to have her... Uh, One of them was to have her committed. Mm -hmm. One of them was to have her declared incompetent, all this other stuff. She beats them to the punch by forfeiting all of it. So their legal arguments for why they should maintain control of it go away. Okay. Because she forfeited it to the two guys she could trust on the board. 
right? Hmm. So the scammers can't make the legal arguments that they want to make about why they should still have control of the money because then they'd be fighting with the other trustees, essentially. Okay. That is very convoluted. It's really great. I love it. It's like the last act of a really good heist movie. I love it. And she won. Uh, one of the newspaper headlines was, uh, quote, Sarah Rector, her own boss, end quote. Nice. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. We have to talk about what she did to these these guys. So four of the scammer guys, none of whom I'm going to name here because I'm sure they still have living descendants. And I'm sure that it's, you know, I just don't want to shame living people for the acts of their ancestors if I can help it. Uh, but basically, one of them was financially ruined because he had tied up all of his money in bad investments using her money. Mm-hmm. And as soon as her money could no longer fund his bad investments, uh, he was financially ruined. Uh, one of the guys went to prison, not for anything that he did for her, but because he made the foolish mistake of trying to run a similar scam on a white kid. Hmm. And then two of the others disappeared into obscurity. Okay. Which which is probably the best fate they could hope for. Sarah Richter went on to uh, live uh, an interesting rest of her life. She she liked wealth. Sure. And I think that's fair to say. She was not uh, ostentatious, but she did do some really cool things. She owned a Rolls Royce, for example. Nice. That she kept chauffeured. And she built a huge, really cool-looking uh, mansion in Kansas City mm-hmm. uh, called the Rector House. In this mansion, mm-hmm. uh, she would entertain people like Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. Count Basie, mm-hmm. boxer Joe Lewis. Nice. Basically, if you were famous and you were an African American, you could come hang out at her house for a really fun party. It was a, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. She eventually passed away at the age of sixty-seven, mm-hmm. but. As a final note, so shortly after her father died, uh, two years after this whole thing resolved, uh-huh. um, her, her father died when she was 20 years old. Uh, one of her brothers was uh, arrested for walking while black in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Sarah Rector went to the jailhouse to pay his bond mm. and and get him, get him out. And... Uh, One of the people who uh, tried to stop her was it was either a desk sergeant or a young lieutenant or some, you know, some random, Mm -hmm. uh, some random police officer basically asked her who she thought she was. And she stares him dead in the eyes and just says, I'm Sarah Rector. And they released her brother within a few moments. I like that. All right. That's pretty cool. So that's it. That is the story of... The weird financial situation of Sarah Rector, the horrible, awful people who tried to cheat her out of it, mm-hmm. and the delicious, excellent outmaneuvering that she did to stop them. That is the 1920 attempt to defraud Sarah Rector. Nice. So you mentioned that she bailed her brother out. Yeah. Which I don't know if I would do for you. I'm not very wealthy. <laughs> or... I mean, you might just not want to take the effort, really. <laughs> really depends on what you were in jail for, Greg. <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's fair. Um, and she had an older sister. She And this is, again, one of the hardest things I had was nailing down exactly how many siblings she had. Mm-hmm. Um, we know I know that she had at least two brothers and at least one older sister. But they were also given allotments. Yes. Were they on the same level of wealth? that Sarah was no. or was she no. like sharing her money with them aside from she was, them yes out? she was sharing her money with them mm-hmm. um 
she wasn't appointing them to a lavish lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Uh, She also wasn't giving them an allowance or anything. It was sort of an, from what I can understand, again, it's really hard to nail down reputable sources on this, but there's a really cool Washington Post article where they actually got to talk with some of her descendants Mm -hmm. who, who simply knew her as aunt's sister which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And it was more along the lines of if you needed something, Mm. she'd be there for you. But it was considered to be very, you just didn't go to her house and ask her for money. Mm -hmm. So. Sibling relationships are fascinating to me because to me, the level of scamming that happened outside the family from people who were, who were not interested in helping or protecting her and were actively trying to take her money away. Yeah. That, to me, when you come into this massive amount of wealth, your family is the one that's going to try and take it away from you. Yeah. You know, we see that so many times. No, but I, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's like usually the biggest danger is going to come from, you know, your your shady, you know, older brother who has a gambling problem. Or, to me, it feels like know. her family was was really trying to protect her. It sounds like it like really what her, feels like that. her mother was doing yeah. and her parents were doing. It really feels like they all sort of tried to yeah, kind of rally around her mm-hmm. and keep her keep her safe from this stuff as much as they could. But again, you know, their rights were even more limited than hers cuz they couldn't they couldn't even play the wealth card. Mm-hmm. So that was the that was the the hardest thing about this. Like I mean, it's really hard for me to imagine as a dad to like not be allowed to look out for my own kids best financial interests i mean statistically you're much more likely to steal it uh, yes statistically <laughs> absolutely which is what and makes we've this seen story that. so interesting to me and we've seen that in like conservatorships and you know modern cases of especially with like child actors yeah who get really wealthy and then their parents yeah their parents are managing them, them and they just take all their yeah. money and then yeah and and in this case, it was it was kind of the opposite. I mean, despite the weird, the really weird thing with her mom and uncle, which honestly may have been something of like good intentions, just badly done. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to nail that one down. But like, you know, her having to file a court petition for her own father to be a financial manager, mm-hmm. not just like, uh, and and having that you know denied, is just crazy to me but yeah i see what you mean like a lot of times it is better to have a dispassionate third party but in this case it was definitely not <laughs> well they don't sound very dispassionate if they were actively using yeah, they sound, her money to buy they sounded very themselves. passionate about using her money yeah exactly <laughs> that's, yeah that's just not what you want okay seriously the it's serious it sounds like a bunch of dudes in a boardroom with top hats and like curly mustaches monocles like it's it, it is that level of cartoon villainy. Yeah. Like, but this was not an uncommon thing, too. Like, she's lucky she had two people on that board that she could work out some kind of trusting agreement with. Mm-hmm. Because the majority of the kids who were in her similar situation did not, and they lost everything. Mm-hmm. And she eventually would pretty much, her wealth would pretty much evaporate when uh, the stock market crashed and took the American economy with it in the Great Depression. So she was only hyper wealthy for ten or twenty years. Is that right? Ish, and and then she lived very comfortably for the rest of it. But she wasn't like super duper wealthy right. anymore because a lot of her money was tied up in property. Yeah, and when the depression hit, it 
you know, didn't do very well for her. Oh, that is a really fascinating story. Thanks. Yeah. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our story today, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. Please let me know, because I I did a lot of research on this, but again, it's a lot of conflicting research, so if I screwed something up, I'd really, really, really like to know about it. Um, And you can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. You know you do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Well, I do want to take a minute here to tell our beloved listeners that we are now on Patreon. Uh, Ella and I have really struggled for a while with a any decision to monetize this podcast in any way. We don't like the idea of making any money off of anybody's misery. On the other hand, on the other hand, this program uh, takes a lot to put together. It is a big time investment. If you enjoy uh, listening to the two of us blather on about crazy things every week, then why not visit our Patreon page, uh, which is Relative Disasters Podcast at Patreon, and uh, maybe drop a dollar in the bucket if you feel like it. It's a it's a subscription service. I think it starts at $5. You can do as much or as little as you want. So if our content is worth a little bit of your cash, uh, we'd really appreciate it. And uh, if you do choose to be a patron, uh, we will be choosing two patrons every week to give them a fun fake disaster that we do with our fake credentials at the beginning of every episode. You can have input on that or you can just be a foolish person and leave it up to us. But we will pick two people a week and cool. I've already got a couple great, uh, great fake disasters for, for our first couple folks. So I'm excited. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, there is a whole age of shipwrecks that we have not covered. Um, and okay. that is the early 19th century which was a very oh. dangerous time for long voyages. And I thought we'd be going back to like Viking longboats or something. We so will. Early we'll 19th there. century. We'll get okay. there. Okay. Okay. Um, but first okay. I want to talk about one of the strangest and most famous shipwrecks okay. that I have ever come across. It is the wreck of the whale ship Essex. Yes. Oh, yes, please. And it that is, is such amazing. a weird story. I don't think I can like summarize it for you. So just know that it's weird. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, it's, I mean, the summary would be it's Moby Dick in real life, except not. Right. <laughs> oh, I, I am really looking forward to this. I, I can't wait. And I'm really glad you took the research lead on this one because... It's a lot. It's a lot, and a I'd lot. be too busy fanboying over like really little minor details. That sounds amazing, and I cannot wait to talk about it with you. 